Hey everybody, welcome to Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring triangle area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am your host, Tamara Kassane. I'm grateful for this conversation with Deborah Kaufman about poetry, playwriting, process, mindfulness, ego, collaboration, and more. Deborah Kaufman is the author of four full-length poetry collections, God Shattered, Delicate Thefts, The Next Moment, and A Certain Light, as well as three chapbooks, four full-length plays, and over three dozen short plays. She was twice a recipient of a regional North Carolina artist grant and recently produced Illuminated Dresses, monologues by 14 women at Burning Coal Theater in Raleigh. A Midwest native, she has lived in North Carolina for 30 years and serves as an editor for the online journal One and on the Paul Green Foundation's Board of Trustees. This episode also has a bonus appearance of my four-year-old. If you listened to the recent episode with Amy Sawyers-Williams, then you are familiar with him crashing my interviews. I popped that interruption at the very end of my conversation with Deborah so as not to interrupt the flow. In the meantime, take some deep, calming breaths, go for a walk with your notebook in your pocket, follow your own process inclinations, and enjoy this episode. Hi, Deborah. Thank you so much for having this conversation. Hey, Tamara. Thank you for having me. Deborah, you are a playwright and a poet, and you were so kind as to bring something to read, one of your poems. Do you want to start us off with a reading? Yeah, I'd love to. I'm going to dedicate this to downtown Mebane because this poem was inspired by a shop, The Elegant Relic, in downtown Mebane. And most of the shops downtown are closed right now. And um, my heart goes out to all the small shop owners that are struggling right now. It's called This Dress. Rain all week, and I have been gloomy, unable to forgive the one who hurt me, when, like a low cloud in a downtown shop window, a diaphanous dress hovers, in gradient shades from dove to charcoal, with tinges of violet, the bodice a soft white knit. I walk through the door, bells chime, sandalwood wafts, Mozart's on the air, and there, there is the dress in my size. Sixty percent off, the sales clerk says, pulling back the curtain, revealing a vintage mirror subtly lit. I slip into layers of rayon and silk, step out to show her. Is it too voluminous? No, she says, it is meant to be generous. I could waltz in this dress and sip champagne. In this dress, I could fall in love again. This is a dress that will billow in the wind, slide off with a whisper, in this dress, I am lovely, luminescent, yes, I am my own enchanted godmother, scattering blessings to all living things. 
Thank you for reading that. That was beautiful. I'm curious about, you said that you dedicated it to Meben, which is where you live. Mm-hmm. Is home something that comes up a lot in your work? Yes, 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 yes. Family, family comes up a lot in, well, family and community in all my work, whether it's poetry or and my plays as well. They're all really pretty much character driven. And I think I got into playwriting through poetry, through voice. There was a story in our family about several generations back. It was a a brutal, brutal story. And it just really bothered me. There was a, a mentally ill, you know, a murder and mental illness and and that this voice just when I was commuting, I worked at Duke, and so my commute to met from back and forth from Mevin, this voice just started speaking. And it, I knew it was more than a poem, but I really didn't know much more than that. And so that was the first time I ever attempted to write a play. And I, of course, knew nothing. I'd never had any instruction or had no idea what I was doing and was in way over my head. But that kind of drove me to thinking about writing in another form and exploring character in a different way, in a fuller way. So I am curious about this question of when an idea is a poem and when an idea is a play and how you make that distinction. And I think what I'm hearing you say has something to do with with voice and with character. Is it something more than that? Yeah, I think it's how big is it as well. You know, like most of my poems are kind of like little scenes in and of themselves. You know, they, I tend to write that kind of poetry as opposed to, say, uh, nature poetry or something like that. I mean, I have a poem called The Daughter in the Basement, and it was inspired by a real situation. And the situation was somebody that their daughter lived in the basement. And it, I have a real primal fear of basements. And it just seemed so like such a terrible thing that it made me think of the mad woman in the attic and Jane Eyre or something, you know, just like somebody being living in a separate, I don't know. It just, it was my own fairy tale based imagination, much more than what the real story was. But I wrote it as a poem. And then later I wrote a short play because I felt like I hadn't explored it enough. And so they're related, but um, I think really it's more, yeah, how far do you want to go? How much time do you want to spend exploring the situation? Do you find that you approach the language similarly? When I was first writing plays, people kept telling me they were too poetic, you know, for plays, that plays should be more realistic dialogue and stuff like that. And I thought, yeah, but what about Tennessee Williams? You know, right. who I love, you know, but I, I, but I understand that, you know, like if you really are, I think there's opportunity for both, but you, you do have to have some, depending on what your intention is with the piece. With a shorter piece, I tend to be, I think, more poetic, but with a longer play where I'm exploring character, I, I want the characters to be relatable. And, you know, so at least some of them have to be pretty practical. There may be one that gets to have flights of fancy in there. (laughs) And where do you find your inspiration? You've mentioned a couple of 
real life stories or events that you then have adapted. Is that your kind of go-to place or do you get inspiration from all over? I get inspiration from who knows where, you know, so much of it, like, especially with poetry, so much of it seems to be serendipitous or something like, you know, I just happened to take a walk and I happened to see these people on the walk and they filled me with this particular feeling or um, the sky looked like this on that day and the image, the crow flying across it at that moment stuck with me, you know, like there's that kind of inspiration. But there are also, I think, again, for plays, I'll hear a story sometimes or read a story and it just resonates with me, I think, maybe almost like in an archetypal way because I I grew up, my mother read us fairy tales when we were really young, my brother and sister, and I've always been sort of inspired by and haunted by fairy tales and the images in them that can be terrifying and beautiful, but also the journey, the story that happens, uh, the, the hero or the heroine who goes on a journey and discovers all kinds of things along the way um, in that sort of Jungian Joseph Campbell type of exploration. And so, so, so I think when I hear a story or like sometimes I've heard things on the radio or I'm like, wow, that is an incredible story. And I sort of would like to explore that more. And I think the reason that is, is because it's resonating with me in that kind of subliminal way that that's why it captured me in the first place. I need that sort of thing that, that kicks in because as you know, right, especially writing a play, especially if you think it's going to be longer than a short piece, it's a real investment in time and energy and, it's a lot of work and a lot of focus. And so I'm not somebody that just can dash plays off willy nilly. It has to be something that I really mull over a lot, I think, before I am willing to, you know, really literally spend that much time sitting and typing, you know, that's so much of it. Sitting down, just sitting still. Yeah. (laughs) When you get this inspiration and you're ready to commit to it, Do you just sit down and sort of let it flow out the first time or do you make a structured outline? What is your approach to kind of getting the play down? I wish I did work from an outline because what I, I write very intuitively and, and I write in longhand first and I really, I usually walk with a notebook, you know, and so if I'm really into the, the world of the play, I'm kind of obsessed with it. And so I'm writing in notebooks and writing and sometimes dreaming about them and processing and processing and trying to figure out who all these characters are and what their backstory is and what they want from each other. And I can, I have several times I've gotten just so lost in that, that I really could never pull off what felt like a completed play that had the arc and a satisfying conclusion and, you know, just didn't want to go back and do all the work really, you know, that it would take to revise. Does that sound familiar to you? Uh, It it does. I'm laughing because I totally identify with that. I also tend to just sit down and sort of 
right into the play. Like I'll just start writing and see where we end up. And Mm -hmm. sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. Because I would get myself all lost and you know, all over the place, I started using classical texts as a structure. So Mm. that's why I didn't have an adaptation of an Ibsen play. And I did an adaptation of a Chekhov play because the structure was already in place. Mm -hmm. And then I could just go where I wanted to within that framework, because I, I feel sort of trapped by an outline. Like I don't like the way that makes me feel, but I think it's sort of the responsible playwriting thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) So I just got some, basically got somebody else to do it for me. You know, it was sort of a hack, a playwriting hack for me. And I think from here on out, I'm going to have to try and buckle down and, and make an outline at least at some point, maybe not the first draft, but maybe when I go back and revise it Mm -hmm. um, to sort of try and figure out why the gears aren't quite clicking in the way that they need to be Mm -hmm. um, probably has to do with the structure. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it usually does. Yeah. Do you see the play? Like, do you see visuals or do you hear voices or what is going on in your mind when you're creating this world? Is it sound? Yeah, it's, it's very voice driven. And so the more I know about the characters, most of my characters are based loosely or if not based on somebody that I've experienced uh, a, a combination of people so that it helps me imagine what they're going through. So when I wrote Harbor Hope, it, it, which is a play about a social worker getting overly involved in the life of one of her clients. And the idea came from an article that I read in The Sun years and years and years ago. And I just thought, that was such a, it was a very compelling story, a way to tell a story about domestic violence that wasn't the traditional one that, so it wouldn't feel like it was like the Hallmark movie of the week or whatever, you know. And I thought that would be a good way to go into a story was look at that relationship. And as I thought, and again, I think that was one of those things that snag, snagged me at that sort of, you know, gut level. And as I I thought about who the character was, I thought about a friend of mine who was a social worker in the early days, in the 80s. Excuse me, it was in the late 70s. I lived in Portland, Maine, and social workers were called on to do things that they really were, you would talk about flying by the seat of your pants, very much that. So domestic violence was just being in the you know, recognized for what it is. And um, that was the early days of uh, shelters. I mean, there've always been traditionally, there have always been women helping other women shelter, but just the idea of having a shelter, those were the early days and people weren't trained to, you know, nobody knew really how to do this because it was new. And so she was a social worker and anyway, long story short, she she found herself getting involved with her clients just out of empathy. And I've spoken with a lot of social workers, and it's very common to you, people that go into those fields are generally usually compassionate, empathetic people. And there is a lot you can get trained nowadays. People understand much more how to be effective and and find. find clearer boundaries. But I said it back in that time because I knew that that was the case, that things were different now. And I didn't want to, 
I, I felt if I was going to tell that story that I needed to set it back in that time when, when she was trying to find her way. And she was a young person trying to find out what her own story was at the same time. So, so that helped me when I could imagine my friend and her situation, even though the character is much more, I think, temperamentally more like me than she, than, than her, it helped me to have that as a framework. I don't know if you feel this way, but you seem to be a very prolific writer. You have so much that you have written. Do you have a regular writing practice? Yeah, I try to. Since I've been retired from Duke, it's been about 10 years now, um, I had the luxury of when I wake up in the morning, I and my kids are grown and gone, I wake up first and I get my coffee and I take my notebook, my journal, and I just sit and watch the birds with my journal beside me, you know, just so I, it's there for handy, being handy, but I, I kind of trick my mind into saying, I'm just sitting here watching the birds and relaxing and taking this time for myself. And usually then I'll want to start processing a lot of the stuff is really boring stuff that I'm just processing. You know, sometimes it might be a dream. Sometimes it might just be something for the sake of writing, you know, to be mm. moving the pen on the paper. I find that helps. And then again, when I walk, bringing a notebook with me, it's just something I can stick in my jeans pocket, a little one of those little pocket things with the pen so that I'm that I've got it. It's kind of both a little device and also uh, just an opportunity. I don't know. I mean, I've, I have written a lot of short things. I've written a lot of poems, but I, I'm not somebody like, there are people that I know that are way more prolific and more disciplined and um, write like Mark Cornell, for example, he writes hours every day and he used, I don't know how many plays he's written. So that's, but that's not me. I, Again, I just, I find it really, really hard just to sit that long, just physically. I need to get up and walk around and move and do yoga or work in the garden or something. And, but when I, when I'm writing a play, especially I get, like I was talking about feeling like I'm in another world. It's almost like an addiction where I have to just like almost have blinders on when I'm in that world it's not the healthiest thing for relationships, you know, it's like, so anyway, there's a lot of things, I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to balance a lot of different things um, for a happy life. And um, mm -hmm. I thought, find that works best for me. If I do a little of this, a little of that, and, you know, just give myself some space. I, I think when I was working full time and raising kids and trying to write, I look back on that myself and think, what in the world were you doing? How did you do it? I, I don't understand. <laughs> but there was a kind of compulsion or something, I don't know, that I felt that I that I don't, I don't feel anymore, I guess what I'm trying to say. You were trying to squeeze it in in a different way when you had all of those other time constraints. Yeah, yeah. And based on the people that I've spoken to, and I'm sure you've had similar conversations, it seems like there's quite a spectrum as far as the way that people approach writing. And some people are very disciplined and they sort of clock in and they clock out and they hit it every day. And that is how they keep themselves writing. And they would feel lost if they didn't have that discipline. And some people 
it's sort of like the well needs to fill up and then Mm -hmm. you kind of let the water flow out and then Mm -hmm. let the well fill up again. And I know for me, it's kind of a, it's a physical sensation almost when Mm. I'm sort of collecting, I can feel myself kind of collecting ideas or collecting emotions or some kind of energy that is collecting in my body. At a certain point, I'll need to release it. It feels sort of like my body's filling with water. And once Mm -hmm, it gets to mm -hmm. about my forehead, I'm like, all right, (laughs) (laughs) time to sit down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's a great, that's a great image. I I really can relate to that. Yeah, I think that's, that's true. And I think just as I've gotten older too, I, and I, and I've done more, I've been doing, I guess the past probably 15 years, I've been doing meditation and yoga practice. And just it's literally, literally true that I feel very differently about what the ego is and what my own ego is, what my own identity is, and I think a lot of a lot of times when we create art, it it can be ego driven, and it, that's not necessarily a bad thing because it can it can be the thing that propels you. But I don't feel as well. I think part of it is right now I don't. Right at this moment, I don't have any big story that I want to tell. That could change at any time. But that, to me, as I said, just in terms of committing oneself, it has to be something. I've tried writing so many different parts of my life that I I think would make really good plays. And they just haven't gelled. I don't know know, why that is. And, And also, then I guess... I have felt not compelled. I keep using the word compelled um, mm-hmm. to go back even and look at them. And I, I just pulled down a big box of journals. I've been keeping journals ever since, I don't know, I was 15 or something. And I don't want anybody to read them. They're all processes and they're all, all just, it's not, I'm not like Aeneas Nin. Aeneas Nin inspired me uh, to keep a journal and um, inspired me in a lot of different ways, but I certainly don't want to publish them and I don't really want anybody else to read them. So I pulled them down and now I'm trying to decide because I definitely want to shred them or burn them, but I'm trying to decide, do I even want to look at them again or not? This is happening around coronavirus. I think, you know, thinking just about mortality and ways one spends one's time and all of that. And I haven't reached a decision. I'm certainly not going to sit down and read them all, but do I want to dip into them? What I came up with today is that I'm going to spread them all out somewhere on the floor or something and take a picture. (laughs) Mm. I've got some beautiful covers, you know, I've got all different sizes and, you know, just take a picture of them before I say goodbye. Because I you know, I don't want to, it's just one of those things, like it's one's past, right? But do you want to go back there? <laughs> That's such a rich conversation to be had related to mm. that because one of my favorite feelings is when I hear something that I have written and I don't realize that I wrote it. Mm-hmm. Because it's so delightful. It's like, oh my gosh, I don't even remember writing that. That's pretty good, you know? (laughs) But it's also, it gives me this sense of 
who was that person that wrote that? Because I don't think that person is really me anymore. And I'm not putting this on you, but I'm thinking because I have my own journals under the house right now Mm -hmm. that I need to do something with. And is it ethical to sort of mine my past self Mm -hmm. for writing material now? Because there's probably some good stuff in there that (laughs) from what I remember. (laughs) Oh, I think it's totally ethical. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. No, I would have I, yeah, I, I mean, I think there, I agree. There's, there's good stuff. It was funny because I did open one of them and it was from 1998 and I just opened it at random and I was writing about this play that I was working on. I was writing about this character that Lloyd was doing this and then so-and-so needs to do that. You know, it was like taking notes for the play. Lloyd will be doing this. And I thought, who in the hell is Lloyd? I had no, I knew it was, I was about a play. I had no idea who that character was. And that whole section was filled with nothing but bits of dialogue and thoughts about what I wanted to do. And then I remembered what that play was, but it's so, 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 so far from me. I can't even imagine wanting to spend the time to go back for that, (laughs) that particular Mm -hmm. thing, because like you said, I'm not there anymore. I'm excited to hear what you decide to do. I love yeah. the picture idea as a way to sort of memorialize it, if yeah. if nothing else. Yeah, I'll let you know. <laughs> I, I'm wondering if you have anything else to say about the impact of meditation and yoga on your writing. You mentioned a new relationship with ego, and it sounds like this compulsion thing that we're ta- we've been talking about during our conversation, you're negotiating that in a different way. But do you have anything to say about the relationship between yogic and meditation practice and mm-hmm. your writing practice? The, one of the most important things I discovered in you know, and when I say discovered, I mean really felt and came to terms with or whatever in my being was discovering mindfulness, a mindfulness practice. I was working full-time at Duke in a very stressful job. And my friend and I, who also worked with me, she said, "There's the, Duke is doing this mindfulness-based um, uh, stress reduction program. We should do it. So I said, okay, let's do it. So that was my introduction to it. And that opened up, even though that's not a Buddhist related, it's strictly a mindfulness, but it's hard to not experience, you know, Buddhist thought um, when doing that practice like that. And so that kind of stuff was just literally kind of blowing my mind, not only what it means to be mindful and to really look at one's mind so that you can recognize the distress or whatever it is that you're in before you react, which is huge. I mean, I just felt like I wanted to proselytize everybody I knew. You need to go do this practice because um, I think I see so much um, distress and acting out every day, all the time. I mean, Facebook is filled with it. People just responding in so quickly before thinking, thinking it all through, or thinking, um, sitting with their own distress that caused them to write that snarky comment or whatever, and also into just the you know these are ideas, they're things that I was that I'd read about and knew about in intellectually, but but the meditation and 
and yoga practice is, you know, grounding it so that you're so in your body with the feelings that a checkpoint is just what are you feeling right now in your body? What is, you know, before you react? So that like, okay, my heart is racing, uh, my face feels flushed, something's going on with me right now. You know, just to have that moment before you react to something has been huge. Mm. And then the idea really that we are, there's, there's no separation of self so that we are all literally all one being. And if you actually can allow yourself to go there, then sniping in the you know, the stuff that drama is made of, right? I mean, drama is made right. out of conflict and, um, and, and people being petty and people being brave and people being, I mean, all of the, all of the emotion, it's all there. And that's what, that's what makes good stories. But I don't want drama in my life. You know, I don't like being in dramatic situations in my life at all. I, you know, mm-hmm. so just, um, being aware of and thinking about us as that, you know, there is no separation of self from others. So that's been really big. It's just given me some more capacity. I think when I was younger, I wanted to blame people for things, you know, blame my parents for this and what, you know, I mean, I think that's just something people often go through, but it's not some place you want to be for very long. Some people are in it their whole lives. They're always blaming somebody um, or looking for for some reason to not take responsibility. And I, I just, so I don't want to do that. And so it's it's given me that kind of uh, space. I guess is what I'm trying to say. There's this cliche that you must suffer to be a writer, and not just not just the typical human suffering mm-hmm. but the the suffering that is the drama on the page manifesting in your life you know and we all hear stories about the kind of the behind the scenes sniping and tortured artist lives and and that sort of thing that you must do this in order to make great work i do not buy that but i do think it is a popular notion mm-hmm. and I think being able to, even just being able to understand that the drama on the page does not have to be the drama in your life, I think Mm -hmm. is a really important idea for artists to kind of get on board with and Mm -hmm. realize that you can make really intense, really transformative work and not live a life of creative pain, I guess Mm -hmm. is the way I'll describe it. Mm -hmm. I know. And I, and I really wonder how, how much of that is gendered because I think that's, that's the story we've gotten about artists. And, you know, the story about artists has always been male artists. One of the most fun things I've ever done was the Illuminated Dresses project because it was collaborative. I love collaborating and I've collaborated usually with women. I've collaborated in all different kinds of ways um, from doing workshops together, you know, just different, different forums to the work that I did at Duke and just different things. So when I had this idea to do the dresses, the idea for it originated with a visual that I just had on my computer. I just loved this drawing. There was a a painting of dresses hanging from a tree that's been around the internet. 
I was just, I loved that image so much. And I thought that would make a great set. But what would I do with it? What would I do with it? And I, you know, thought about it off and on different ways that you could do something like that. And then it hit me that rather than trying to come up with a bunch of stories, that it would be really fun to get a bunch of writers to do a piece. So then that's how I came up with the idea of doing monologues because I thought that would be doable. And I just, I did a call for monologues and people responded. And then I called from what I had. And then that the whole process of putting that piece together was collaborative with, with Lori Mall, the director, and the way that we worked with the artists, you know, the, all the creative people. I felt like it was the sum was greater than, or the whole was greater than the sum of, of its parts because of that. And mm. It was really energizing and exciting. And there, you know, there were some rough patches here and there, but generally speaking, I think everybody was just beautiful and generous and with their ideas and time. And, and I just thought that was, that was part of what I wanted to do as a woman writer. I've been wanting to bring, you know, we all, all women writers know that there's a dearth of women writers, especially in the plays and movies, you know, their stories are still way underrepresented. And so part of it was a sociopolitical motive for wanting to do it. And part of it was a sociopolitical motive to do it collaboratively, because I thought, let's, you know, let's not take the male paradigm of the man on top delegating to everybody down below, but what would it be like to really be, take the time to, to work. And theater is, you know, has a lot of natural collaboration anyway, but it was really, really exciting to me. And I, I just think it, it will be fun and interesting to explore more of that as we get to hear more women's voices on, on the stage and in films, which is its beginning. Yes, I love that idea. I'm such a fan of collaborative writing in my own practice, but also I enjoy it when other people do it as well, because I mm-hmm. think there's something, it kind of goes back to what you were saying about we are we are all one essentially. And so together we have more answers than we do as a single you know, mm-hmm. individual. Mm-hmm. Why not represent that community and that unity across, across the diversity of voices? So mm-hmm. I love that. I do too. And I remember years and years ago, with the first time I saw you, that play, and I can't think of the name of it, but it was that play in down in Durham. It was you and another woman, both Cheryl, hands. probably. Was yeah, it both uh-huh. hands? Yeah, the, with a mess, the messy room. Yes. <laughs> yes. What was that called? It was called exactly what to do, and it was at Man Bites. Yeah, it was at Man Bites. Yeah, I loved mm-hmm. that. I thought it was so creative and wild and fun. I was like, wow, those, they are really cool. And I don't know if you were fresh out of school or something. It was just so high energy and really very collaborative. It was a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> and I don't have that er- energy anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody had for- to rebuild that set every night. That kind of blew my mind. <laughs> you know what the worst part was, was getting it out of there. That was the oh, worst. Was I like bet. The strike for that was oh my ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah. That was one of those, like, this is a really great idea. But when we actually did it, oh my gosh, what did we set ourselves up for? (laughs) After that, it was just like, can we do a play with, you know, two black boxes and like two chairs? Yeah. I mean, we've got some really, really pretty cool stuff. And we have, and we will again, 
theatrically around here. So, yes. Do you happen to have around you, near you, another of your poems that you will be willing to read to close us out? Sure. Maybe I'll read The No Separate Self, since we were talking about that concept. Wonderful. If there is no separate self, the man cursing his wife in the coffee shop, the veteran in a wheelchair with his sign at the off-ramp, the florid man in his silver Mercedes, the child on the playground whose arm is being twisted, and the child twisting that arm, the elders clustered in the common room, and those who tend to them, the teenage girl in her filmy dress, and the boy on the sidewalk dogging her, any accuser, anyone being blamed, every general mercenary victim, every animal chained, poisoned, pampered, every bird gazed upon or shot at, every swimming thing shining, netted, each milkweed and each monarch sipping its blossoms. All are me. You are they. Thank you. That was a wonderful way to end our conversation. I really appreciate uh, spending this time with you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tamara. Appreciate it. Take care. I am going to press the pause button for a moment because my four-year-old has just gotten out of bed and walked in dressed as a police officer. (laughs) So I am going to wrestle him back to bed, or actually, I'm just going to hand him over to my husband. Um, I will be right back. Hold on one second. Uh Clark. Come on, bub. I love you, but I'm I'm in the middle of a meeting. Okay. I want mommy to put me to bed. <clears throat> hey, I'm coming. <laughs> oh my lord. <laughs> okay, I am so sorry. Oh, no, I remember those days. I had two oh. boys, so I remember those days. <laughs> well, thank you for understanding. He his bedtime's at seven thirty and I specifically start these at eight o'clock because usually he is asleep. But yeah. tonight he decided <laughs> to make a special appearance. He was we- <laughs> and he was wearing his sunglasses, Aww. a police officer outfit, and carrying a stuffed lamb. So it oh, was like God, quite hilarious. Quite a look. <laughs> I love that. There's something about the four year old. They was the performative Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of fun, imaginative play. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, he's he's a little bit of an energizer bunny, so that kid doesn't he doesn't really shut off. I wish that he <laughs> I wish he would a little bit. Okay. All right. So I'm back and we can we can jump back in okay. into this. Um let me just get my mind around it. Okay. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. For more information, see our website, artistsoapbox.org.